Hi there, Alex here. Just a brief announcement before we get started. There'll be two live BungaCast events in Germany this week to mark the publication of the German edition of our book, The End of the End of History. So on Wednesday, the 8th of June, I'll be in Berlin in conversation with Jacobin Europe editor David Broder, and we'll be discussing ruling class hysteria and neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, and that'll be at Spike Art magazine. And then on Thursday, the 9th of June, I'll be in Munich at the Monazencia in conversation with Anton Jaeger and Bernhard Pirkel. Both events are free, no reservations required, and they both start at 7 p.m. And they'll be followed by drinks afterwards. Uh, there's more information in the show notes uh, if you need to look up the details and the addresses. Um, but I hope to see you there. And now on with the show. Welcome to Bungacast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on the 1st of July. No, it's not. It's the 1st of June. Um, getting ahead of myself. Um, I'm joined, as usual, by George Hoare. Uh, hi, George. Hi. Hi from London. Hi. And indeed, hi from London from me, too, which is exciting. We're not even in the same room, though. We couldn't even organize that, um, which says something we- about the organizational uh, capacities <laughs> of the left, I guess. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, Phil is away. Um, I'm not sure where he is, but he's not here. Um, so, uh, but we do have a, not a Phil replacement, but we do have a guest, which actually we should have had on already a very long time ago. I've been a big fan of um, what he tweets at Daily Barbarian. It is uh, Jeff Schulenberger, uh, who teaches at NYU, is a columnist at Compact, uh, and also has a podcast called Outsider Theory, which also has very frequent, interesting guests and conversations, and it's worth checking out. If you were ever a listener to listen to a podcast other than BungaCast, that might be a, an idea. Um, but, you know, you don't have to listen to other podcasts. You can just stay right here. Um, Jeff, uh, it's great to have you. Thanks. Uh, long time, first time, as they say. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so uh, we want to discuss a couple of different issues uh, in some ways hinged on two pieces that you've written relatively recently. Maybe, maybe you actually wrote them a very long time ago, but at least um, they, they came out uh, yeah, in the in the recent months. Which One is a piece in American Affairs about how we forgot Foucault. The other is a piece in the New Atlantis, uh, the crisis of the crisis. And so obviously these things refer to questions of uh, the pandemic, biopower, social control, and so on, as well as emergency politics. And uh, listeners who've been following us and who've been following our reading club syllabus for 2022 will um, maybe identify certain similar themes there. Um, we've started the year, the first six months of the year, dedicated to the theme of emergency politics and control. Um, so we've been reading some classic texts on that and, and some newer texts, indeed, on the politics of fear. Um, and so this will be a good opportunity to kind of continue that discussion that we're having and kind of, um, yeah, develop the theme. Um, most recently, specifically, we actually discussed the birth of biopolitics, which is a series of lectures Michel Foucault gave in France in the late 70s. Um, and we disagreed amongst ourselves, amongst the three of us. Phil, unfortunately, can't be here to, to speak for himself. But anyway, um, about exactly how useful the idea of biopolitics is, um, the extent to which it's relevant today, to the extent to which it's a recipe. Anyway, so maybe to get started, if you could explain, um, Jeff, what your basic argument is. And the basic argument 
I'm asking you it, but I'm also going to tell people <laughs> the, the very, very basic idea, which is one that um, lots of people have made before. Phil has been making this point for quite a while, actually, since the early days of the pandemic, which is basically that the right has adopted Foucault and the left has abandoned it after having used biopolitics uh, for quite a while as a, as a critical tool. So maybe take us from there. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's curious when I start with the, in the American affairs piece is that, you know, even as I was writing it, there was still all of this kind of, um, there were, there were these new ways. So Foucault Noir of the right of the center left kind of classical liberal types for quite a while. Um, they see him as, you know, one of these sources of a kind of corrosive, like postmodern relativism. Um, but so even as I was writing this, there were all of these um, new waves of kind of hostility to Foucault being unleashed on the right, most notably that this other French intellectual of the same sort of generation, Guy Sormont, who, um, you know, had, had become, has, you know, is, is basically a conservative, but sort of was in some of the same circles as Foucault decades ago, and made this claim about him uh, engaging in pedophilia while he was living in Tunisia in the late 60s. So in any case, the right is still, I mean, I, I wouldn't overstate the sort of the right embracing Foucault per se, because they're still plenty hostile to him. Um, but, you know, there has been this general way that, that the themes of Foucauldian critique have sort of surfaced in ways, you know, both explicit and implicit in the kind of right wing response to the pandemic. And I think, you know, before I got to this, the person who explored this um, in, in, considerable depth and, um, and, you know, in a very cogent way was um, Blake Smith, uh, who, ha you know, has a series of articles on this subject. And he also has an interesting article that I think came out after mine, that's something about like conservative, how conservatives became the new queers or the new gays or something like that. And he, he basically compares this kind of, you know, um, ir you know, during the AIDS crisis, the way that there, there was this kind of rebellion against um, the, the sort mm -hmm. of, um, you know, the, the, the fear, you know, rebellion against the, the kind of fear that was, that was circulating and being imposed and the kind of controls that came with it um, in the form of essentially, you know, continuing to engage in risky sexual activities um, regardless. And so he kind of points out how kind of the conservative, you know, thumbing their nose at pandemic controls and this kind of, um, you know, this kind of pleasure in this like hedonistic revolt against right, yeah, this, and the this new regime. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this also, it fits into this longer, you know, you've had Angela Nagel on here before. Um, she's someone I've spoken to a number of times. And, you know, the, this longer kind of head of conservatives embracing transgression and not necessarily directly through kind of Foucault's account of it, but just through a kind of, embrace of the cultural politics of transgression. So I think there's there's a way that that, you know, sets up some of the response to the pandemic. And then, but then there's also a way that I think, you know, you see a lot of these kind of just middle American um, people who are, you know, in these kind of exurbs and, you know, wouldn't have necessarily been paying attention to like, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos or that kind of era of right-wing um, transgression, but but who are kind of, you know, when confronted with the pandemic are kind of embracing the spirit of of transgressive, you know, again, kind of thumbing their noses at this this new regime of control, right? And so, you know, so, so there's an interesting theme here, which, which doesn't necessarily have to do with the right overtly saying, you know, we now think Foucault was right, but, but 
kind of picking up on the spirit of, you know, I mean, he was somebody who was in like the Bay Area in the 80s, seems to have contracted HIV there, and that was what led to his death, right? So, you know, that, that they're kind of picking up on the spirit of transgression that, yeah, that he yeah. that he sort of celebrated and was part of. And then at the same time, in a sort of incipient way, they're trying to figure out what this this form of power is that they're having to contend with, right? Which seems, um, you know, it takes the form of, for example, public health authorities, um, yeah. you know, essentially, um, in their view, sort of hijacking the government and, you know, imposing these um, new controls by fiat um, without any kind of, you know, normal procedural um, process and, and that, you know, this is happening both on local and national levels. And so they're trying to, and, and so I think, you know, the fact that the right has in various ways gotten interested in trying to theorize like the managerial, you know, is kind of returned to figures like James Burnham and trying to figure out yeah. like, what is yeah. this managerial class? What is this bureaucracy um, that seems to exert power in a way that can kind of override um, you know, what we, what we might have taken to be the kind of, you know, will of the people. And so Foucault himself is kind of interested in, in this as well, right? And he does, you know, trace back to the, eight, the period of the French Revolution, a kind of concern about the emergence of sort of, you know, the first modern public health authority. So, Jeff, just, just yeah. kind of going yeah. into to, to Foucault himself. I mean, I just think this this idea of like conservatives embracing transgression, which is yeah, as you said, probably part you know, Kill All Normies by Angela Nagel's one of the the earliest kind of recognitions that this this is happening. I mean, do you think it's like? I guess my question is, what what do you think is the bigger thing that needs explaining? Sort of why the right have taken up Foucault, or why the left kind of dropped him? Is it is it too simple to say that the left like? Um, you know, to generalize and if you can even talk of the left and all that sort of thing, but like that the left turned away from transgression and that in the COVID period, it was kind of conformity rather than transgression that was the, the on, on the left's banners. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this, this sort of relates to a, a broader argument I make about. So, you know, part of what's interesting about Foucault and has been interesting to me for a while pre pandemic was the way that his, um, you know, a, a certain version of his uh, thinking became, you know, incredibly dominant in the academic humanities, at least in the U.S. Um, yeah, massively. And, and that was that was very evident, you know, when I was in graduate school and so on. And you know, the, even again prior to this, I I found it interesting that, um, you know, I mean, one point that he, you know, is is famous for is just this this kind of idea of power as this kind of diffuse force right that you know is operating at every level right and so you know part I, I suppose my maybe my earliest theorization of like the the left at least left academia's relationship to Foucault was it had less to do with uh being particularly transgressive and more to do with this idea that you know through this kind of um prof, you know essentially competitive professional activity you could still be engaging in a kind of politics. So I, you know, that, that if power is operative at every level, then, you know, that means when you go to a yeah. academic conference and deliver a paper, you're on some level engaging in a, a potentially subversive act or, or mm, engaging in, in a, you know, a, op, occupying a site of resistance or something like that. So yeah. it, it sort of threads the needle between, um, 
you know, keeping up with the kind of, you know, 60, you know, the spirit of 68 and this kind of, um, you know, new left, uh, you know, animating set of kind of broadly left principles, but at the same time, this kind of complete absorption into this, you know, hyper-competitive and highly professionalized setting. So that, so, so that was kind of how I thought of it then, yeah. No, so it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's funny because a lot of the Foucauldian approach would, could be summed up, you know, rather crudely as, you know, denuding the in institutions of their sense of neutrality and independence, right? And I think actually you put it more or less that way in the, in the piece. Um, which is a little bit ironic, especially for the academic left, for whom, you know, institutionality, certainly in terms of being wedded to the academy, but also in certain cases, you know, wedded to the judiciary, um, maybe to uh, institutions of the press and other ones, you know, which are effectively, you know, classic institutions that the professional, uh, you know, professional managerial class, but the middle class more generally has, um, has defended certainly kind of more urban middle classes and defended the professional values inherent in those and so on. Um, so there's already a, an obvious point of tension there, I think. You know, they're saying, hey, uh, you know, Fou we're Foucauldians and institutions aren't neutral, but actually all the ones that we believe in, we um, believe in their neutrality and their independence. So I think that there's something like already sort of paradoxical there. Maybe what we're seeing now is a kind of smoothening out of that contradiction, right? That they, that they are abandoning these you know, more radical Foucauldian notions and just going, no, maybe institutions can be independent and neutral and then we should just back them. Effectively a, a nakedly conservative turn. Yeah, right. I think it's, um, <laughs> you know, so, so in one sense, it, it becomes a kind of uh, professional, a way of kind of mythologizing their own kind of professional activity and status, um, which, you know, in effect ends up being a, I mean, so on one hand, it, it, it's, it's a sort of concert, you know, it becomes a kind of conservative ideology in that it, it, it provides a kind of rationale for, um, you know, operating within this system. Um, but, but at the same time, it's, it's also, it, it also enables, and this is something else I've written about that, you know, I mean, the, the way that, that a sort of transgressiveness manifests itself in this, these kind of settings is that like, in a lot of these fields now, and I mean, this has been the case for a while, but I think it's been escalating. You know, the way that you really is to basically propose like abolishing the field that you're actually a professor of. <laughs> like the, you right. know, we, we have a, like, there's a ma major case of this in classics, the major case of this in anthropology where, you know, essentially these people are the rising stars in the field. What they're saying is that, and, and these are, are people who've gone through, you know, the entire process of professional formation very successfully, but then, you know, what, what kind of really gives them the spotlight is to say that like this field in which I've made my career is, you know, irrecuperably, you know, racist, yeah, white yeah. supremacist, et cetera, and therefore needs to be dismantled. Right. Yeah. And, and so it can it, be, I think that it can be pitched yeah. as, as quite, as quite brave as well. Like, wow. Just yeah, really, really exactly. speaking uh, truth to power, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it, it's, it's of a piece with this kind of um, yeah, the, this sort of paradoxical, sensibility where, you know, you know, on one hand, I mean, the people who occupy these positions, um, you know, paradoxically kind of thrive in them precisely by positioning themselves as kind of subversive 
insiders who are going to in some way revolutionize it while of course, you know, still continuing to kind of draw their paychecks and so on. So I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, the, you, you guys have had um, Catherine Liu, you know, on a number of times. I mean, she, she sort of discusses this in terms of like the, this kind of, um, you know, that, that the values, you know, she seems to argue that, that there, there are sort of, you know, positive values of the professional classes that, you know, come from an earlier period, but, but that those have largely been abandoned in favor of these, this kind of opportunistic nihilism. I, I think um, that's, I think that's probably clearest with regard to free yeah. speech, actually, as a matter of, you know, I think that it's the most pointed and most fundamental element where um, a lot of the professional managerial class has no real concern for free speech. They might uh, for privacy in certain instances, but even there, um, it's it's maybe not a consistent defense of privacy, uh, but certainly with free speech, it's like an area where it's like, well, that's not uh, something that matters to us. And there's it's other it's other people who are just going to abuse this right, and therefore that you know we need to we need to enforce right thought, and that's probably the most clear uh, change in the middle. I think in the kind of professional middle class, which used to be a pretty strong defender of of, of free speech. Um, so sorry, just just to just to clarify, Jeff, is 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 your is your take or your analysis of this basically that the um, yeah that the professional managerial class as a whole is prepared to to sell out the conditions of its own authority ultimately, like anything around the the knowledge that it produces, and that this I mean, would you extend this and say this is ultimately a kind of I guess it's and to a certain extent it's like the sign of a of a group or a, a, a social situation that's in decline because you you know you realize it's not going to be continuing anymore so you've just got to kind of make you know make your your like what you can before this whole edifice collapses I mean is this your take that this it's a, a group of people who are prepared to sort of say whatever is whatever you would give me the social authority um like it's i'm prepared to sell that out just to to get further within within the game that i'm playing at this point in time yeah i mean i think at least narrowly within the academic within the setting of the academic humanities right you know which is in in radical decline as a as a profession um in every sort of regard as i think that's about right i mean more broadly i think it also connects to the way that you know, emergency politics becomes the kind of only means by which institutions legitimate themselves um, kind of at every level. And so, you know, this is kind of a version of that, right? Saying that, you know, your uh, your own field, your own sort of, you know, specialized field in the academy is, is itself, uh, you know, uh, plunged into the state of emergency <laughs> by, you know, by its, its sort of inherent... Um, white supremacy, et cetera. And therefore, you know, I mean, in effect, what's needed is for some um, heroic, you know, moral agent to step up and, um, you know, reorient it um, in, in a new way. Um, so, I mean, I think it, 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 it also just fits in with the, the broader way that kind of emergency politics seem to be kind of endemic on all, on all levels. Yeah. Um, I do want to come back. I want to come back to that, like specifically, um, and we can spend a bit of time on that. I just want to do a bit of sidebar on on the question of transgression before we kind of move on, because we can sometimes look nostalgically at 
previous lefts and, you know, kind of the new left spirit of rebellion, or indeed maybe look enviously at some of the contemporary right, populist right, or whatever it might be called, and think like, oh, well, they're really sticking it to the man. And, you know, the left now has become so compliant and it's over COVID. That's a good example. Um, but I mean, my, and, and ultimately what's behind that kind of transgression is an element of, of enjoyment or jouissance and that, you know, effectively it's not just simple pleasure. It's a, it's a, um, it's pleasure that is obtained in some way by transgressing a limit or um, tarrying in some way with, with limits. So it can be masochistic uh, enjoyment can be part of that as well for that matter. And, my general rule on politics is if it feels good, don't do it. Or alternatively, uh, if it doesn't feel good, do it. Um, which uh, it's basically to say that politics is about discipline and not necessarily about jouissance. And we, the, the desire for a kind of rebellious left, okay, I mean, obviously rebellion is important in any kind of um, movement seeking an alternative to the current order. Right. Um, to put it in the most basic terms, but at the same time, and, and you know, compliance isn't good, but I, th I think there's something else to be found between those two poles of rebellion uh, and transgression and the pleasure you obtain from that and compliance, which also actually has perhaps its own element of 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 um, of like jouissance, right? That it's like I'm I'm enforcing the rules, I'm enforcing them on myself, I'm enforcing them on the other. You're pushing things to such a limit of, you know, of, of compliance that you derive some almost a sort of masochistic and sadistic pleasure from that. Um, and so I don't think that's good either. I think, again, if it, if it um, you know, if it feels good, don't do it. Um, and that's the, that's the rule for politics. Yeah. I mean, here, I think I, you know, I read something recently for unheard about the, you know, the sort of two year anniversary of, of George Floyd and, um, you know, I, I think there you have another interesting example where, I mean, I know anecdotally from talking to people that, you know, part of what was going on clearly um, in, in those weeks was, uh, you know, people were simply having the opportunity to um, go outside and be around other people and, but also have a moral legitimation for that, right? So, it, I mean, in other words, it, there was an element of simply feeling good, right? Straightforwardly that, that a lot of people who participated in that felt. And I mean, I know this because I've talked to friends and acquaintances who have reported that was exactly their experience like here in New York in those months. But, you know, I think what we see there is, okay, so we did have a kind of rebellion, right? We saw something, an immense number of people um, was also immensely destructive, right? It, it actually did um, have you know, a, a, a remarkable sort of footprint in terms of what it did um, in, in various kind of urban landscapes. Um, and yet, you know, it, as far as I can tell, the main thing that that did was kind of, you know, add a sort of oomph to the Biden campaign that, you know, helped kind of re reconsolidate yeah. this, um, you know, th this kind of revolving door, you know, DNC politics. So, and that's not, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily look at this conspiratorially. I mean, I think it is interesting that, like, as that, you know, um, Time Magazine piece sort of, you know, in in a report, reported on in a positive, you know, in a, in a positive light, you know, basically the the leaders of a lot of these protests are actually coordinating directly with, you know, various Democratic Party staffers as well as, um, 
you know, unions and NGOs, and you know, that there was kind of this, uh, there, there was a kind of coordinated push, right? And that's, you know, that, that was told to us in this Time Magazine article, which, you know, was presenting it as this, you know, great positive thing that everybody had come together to get rid of the bad orange man. But, you know, it, so I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, yeah, I mean, we've seen something that, you know, checked all the boxes of a kind of rebellion in, in it, or a, a kind of, I mean, even, tra- you know, I mean, I'd say transgressive sort of rebellion that, that seemed to kind of summon up the spirit of 68 and all of that. Um, and yet, you know, there, there's no real sense in which it, um, in which it, you know, was, was at odds with the agenda of like, you know, the yeah. main people funding the Biden yeah. campaign. So you could you could call it a, a sort of conformist rebellion, perhaps used um, the title of yeah. a, mm-hmm. of a recent a recent yeah. election. Because I mean, and this this I guess does relate to to your your point, Alex, about you know if it feels good, don't do it. Because there can be a superficial like feeling of of jouissance or or whatever uh, the English for that would be if you're kind of rebelling. But actually. I guess the question of whether this is or, or how this is connected to to interests of, of various groups is is you know it, if you if you treat that as secondary, you're going to end up with a lot of um, manufactured dissent and conformist rebellions because yeah. it's about how it feels and how it looks rather than really what political changes or lack of it, it's going to be it's going to be causing. No, and and, and then, it's and it's evident that it's um, in, like completely implicated with a rejection of authority. Right. So it's not seizing authority for itself, whatever movement kind of engages in this transgression, because it assumes or builds up this kind of big authority, which you're rebelling against with the assumption somehow that it'll still be there tomorrow. You know, so it's not saying, OK, actually, there is no authority and we're seizing it for ourselves. Um, it kind of uh, reifies that that authority. And that's what's probably I think that that would be the the middle way, as it were, between you know, transgressive rebellion and compliance, which, you know, itself is, it would be, would be in some ways transgressive or provide some enjoyment, uh, would be the kind of seizing of authority for, for oneself. And that demands responsibility. And it's not a lot of fun because what you are generally trying to do in life is to avoid responsibility, you know, because we all do it, right? You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to say, I'll be responsible for this. Um, but that's important. So I think that's kind of the, the key there. And I mean, we might go back to January 6th as well, because, you know, there we saw something that was kind of a much, at least aesthetically, a much more convincingly kind of countercultural, uh, you know, kind of transgressive right. political act. Um, yet again, it, it was, you know, I, I mean, it was, and it was also interesting to see the, you know, I, I think the, the, obviously we know what the predominant left response to it was, there was a putsch or whatever, you know, fascist coup. But then I think there was a more subtle one, which was basically, you know, I wish we could sort of have the chutzpah to do something like that. <laughs> so like, um, and and so you know, I think there were there was kind of a a certain amount of envy, um, at least in certain quadrants of the left. And I mean, I I spoke to, you know, friends with the sort of anarchist background who definitely felt this. Um, but but again, I mean, and I actually spoke to Angela. Um, you know, pretty soon after that, and we, we sort of talked about it in terms of this, um, you know, her whole account of the kind of rise of transgression on the right. Um, and, you know, I think in a sense, the, the complete sort of hollowness of the political project it, it represented was, was what, um, what ultimately came 
came out of it. Now, I mean, on the other hand, I was kind of interested because we're talking about state of exception, but we could leave this. So another um, point in the discussion, if you want, but I mean, I think this, this project of the, you know, that's still ongoing of, of John Eastman, right, who was the main lawyer trying to essentially overturn the election results is, is quite interesting um, as a, a somewhat more substantive, if, if kind of insane um, sort of right-wing project that, that I think goes beyond the kind of purely gestural subversion. Again, I'm, I'm not, this isn't an endorsement, but it, but it is a, a, another interesting manifestation of this kind of, um, of, of a, a version of emergency politics that's coming out of the right that I think is, is both kind of batshit, but also has, has a little bit more substance to it than, than, than some of these kind of um, you know, transgressive displays. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes me think because obviously there's a lot of this in uh, in Brazil, you know, constant talk of uh, Bolsonaro attempting to do the same thing um, of, you know, stealing the election or, you know, refusing to step down. But it's obviously, you know, in a context which is far more, the institutions are far more precarious, right? So it's it's not like, you know, you know there's a dictatorship in living memory. So um it, it's more complicated. And I think one of the, to kind of double back to Foucault, because I'm now started talking about Brazil, but this reminds me in a sort of a bridge between the things is that there's a, and I wonder whether it applies to the American right is what I'm getting to the, to, to towards. Um, there's a, an interesting argument made uh, by a Brazilian theorist that Bolsonaro's appeal um, is actually uh, Foucauldian, or rather he reads it through a Foucauldian lens. So it's not class domination explicitly, but rather it is the kind of petty power of, of you know, a man, a husband over his wife, um, of, uh, of the foreman over his workers, of, of um, you know, the president over the populace um, of, I mean, the, 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 the successful person over the unsuccessful person, but perhaps of the same class, um, and that that is the appeal there and that there is a libidinal pleasure in saying, no, actually, all these restraints and whether moral or legal on your action should be reeled away. So you, the um, like the uh, kind of artisanal miner, I don't mean artisanal in the sense of it being kind of hipster. I just mean like freelance uh, gold miner in, in the Amazon is able to go out and dominate and steal territory. Um, of the Indians. And it's like, well, screw the Indians and screw the regulations and screw what morality says, you know, you shouldn't do, you're allowed to do it, right? Um, and uh, I, I wonder whether there's a similar thing at play, because I, I found it a very convincing argument of, of Bolsonaro's appeal and also his cross-class appeal. Um, because although he, you know, he doesn't have much support among, he doesn't have support amongst women and he doesn't have support amongst the black, you know, majority of Brazilians. But every every other group, you find him, you find support for him. Um, so it is kind of cross class, uh, and that's a, an important element, I think, in explaining it. So anyway, I was curious whether you think that argument would apply, maybe to the American right. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I, I think in some sense. Um, the American right, you know, has, again, this, this kind of goes back to the point about um, the, the sort of increasing, you know, return to particularly James Burnham um, and, and his accounts of the managerial elite and, you know, the way that they've, 
I mean, in, in, in a much more, um, you know, it's not to say that there weren't elements of this before, but, you know, they've come to kind of identify the, the sort of main, the, the kind of locus of, of political struggle as being against certain institutions and those who, who operate in them, right? And, and um, you know, particularly, basically the kind of realms of the government that are staffed by unelected bureaucrats, right? And, you know, th this is, I mean, it, it is a sort of interesting development that that's become so much more, um, so much more pronounced now. I mean, you know, part of what's kind of interesting and ambiguous about this is that, you know, that, that the expansion of that realm has been, you know, has taken place under both, demo, you know, that realm of kind yeah. of, um, you know, state bureaucracy has taken place under, you know, both Democratic and Republican presidents, and, it, and, and, it's, a, and it's a security and it's a security apparatus as much as it is the medical establishment, or you know, things that the left likes, or things that the right likes. Right. Right, and then you had, um, I mean, you had the left sort of embrace the, you know, national security agencies, the, you know, the, the various intelligence agencies the FBI um, as, as sort of allies in the resistance, you know, during the Trump years. And so I think in that sense, yeah, there, there's a, there's an obvious way that a certain kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of personalistic model of power is, I mean, is at least intuitively and sort of, um, you know, emotionally um, appealing to uh, a movement that largely you know, sees itself as a war with these kind of um, hidden realms of bureaucracy that where where power operates in these these highly opaque ways. Now, I mean, something that's kind of interesting here that your remarks reminded me of is that if if you read uh, Benjamin Bratton's, I know I think George interviewed um, yeah. yeah interviewed Bratton on here, but if you read his book Revenge of the Real, you know, it, it essentially just kind of reverses the terms of this because it it basically sees pop, you know, right-wing populism as this kind of reversion to, I mean, and he's, you know, his framework is entirely Foucauldian. So he's a left leftist who did not forget Foucault and is in fact kind of repurposing biopolitics as a positive project as he puts it. But basically he sees, um, you know, right-wing populism as this kind of reversion to the logic of sovereign, this more kind of archaic, um, mode of, of governance of power that is, you know, that Foucault identifies with sovereignty, right? Which then, you know, Foucault argues kind of wanes and is, is replaced by this, um, this new, you know, kind of more diffuse mode of power that he identifies with biopolitics. So for Bratton really, you know, the point is to be on the side of biopolitics because the alternative is this kind of regression to a sort of personalistic model of, yeah. of sovereignty, right? Which, which is what he claims it's, all right populism he, is. So, so it's interesting to see him kind of articulate a similar opposition to what you see on the right, but in a, in a way that basically embraces the, um, the, the sort of managerial state as the, the necessary mode of exercising power. I think, um, I know that the, the episode with, um, with Benjamin Bratton wasn't necessarily the, the most popular one that we've done amongst um, our listeners, but I think he's, I think it's an important book or an important position. Um, not one that I happen to, to, to have all that much sympathy with, let's put it that way. But I think in terms of the drawing out the, um, implications of Foucauldian thought and then staking out a political position as you 
said jeff the you know the the phrase positive biopolitics that's that's the the the, the summary i think that is an extremely important i think you know been proved to be correct on this has been really important element of um, left thinking in the past in the past couple of years and one that there are many reasons why you know it could it can continue to be quite influential even post post kind of um, covid emergency because i think there's going to be um, a whole load of of kind of changes that we'll, we'll see in the next few years coming off the back of that and yeah i mean i think it's um it's interesting that basically the people who as far as i sort of read it who really um stuck true to their Foucauldian origins were uh Bratton um Agamben um who was much less popular than than Benjamin Bratton um on on the left and there aren't that many more like it was weird because you you know you might have sort of seen some critiques of, of Foucault coming in the in the Covid period but it was mostly just ignoring um except for um uh, or maybe it was kind of displaced onto a gamben and saying that a gamben's terrible and then you don't have to deal with Foucault you can sort of deal with the quote-unquote distortion of his thought in um in a gamben but yeah just wanted to to stick in a, a defense of um of my of my uh choice to interview uh Benjamin Bratton on on the podcast because listeners were not <clears throat> uh did, did not seem to to grow to agree with me that it was an important conversation to have <laughs> always good to subtly attack the audience in a, in a very gentle way but <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, I, I agree with that i think you know it's it's a it's a useful book, if nothing else, because I think it articulates things that, um, you know, were, were kind of implicitly accepted across much of the left, but were never really argued for. Um, and so it does, it does at least give you something to, because I, I, I mean, part of what's frustrating about a lot of these conversations around COVID is that, that they often amount to a kind of refusal to even discuss and, you know, that, that there, there's very much this kind of, I mean, and something I'm kind of interested in, which, you know, ties into all of this, although it might be too big of a can of worms to open, but, um, you know, kind of the relationship between neoliberalism and, and biopolitics, which is, of course, central to uh, Foucault's birth of biopolitics lectures. But, you know, there is this kind of, there is no alternative um, kind of, attitude that it, that arose um where you, you know you essentially couldn't you know it, it was it was it was anathema to even um to even you know bring any even mild criticisms to a lot of the stuff and so i i think braddon is helpful in that he does at least articulate an argument that you can engage with rather than just a kind of you know cutting off of debate in the name of saving lives or whatever but i mean i guess what's what's very absent in this opposition between you know, the position Bratton represents and the position that some of the right represents in terms of wanting, you know, this charismatic authority of the president to, um, you know, basically enact sovereignty through its own acts of exception, right? We don't need to follow the rules, let's just get stuff done. Is the whole concept of democratic authority, is the concept even of, of real state capacity, which gets ignored in all of this, which is a, a big element in, 
in the, uh, I think, uh, at least that's my take, in, in the response to the pandemic, that the, it was the absence of state capacity which led them to impose lockdowns, for example, because they didn't have a, a way to keep business running as normal as possible while also you know, protecting the vulnerable. Um, and so you end up with this, yeah, this opposition between um, the liberal defense of institutions and especially non, you know, of unelected bureaucrats and their ability to manage life and the rights opposition, which is also not democratic. Um, and so that opposition brings me on at least to the yeah, question I mean, this, of- Yeah, this of, also- Oh, sorry, I was just gonna finish the, the question of competing emergency politics, because that seems to be what the what structures a political spectrum today, such as it is, um, and it's terrible. Um, and it's gonna, and I, yeah. I don't see it improving, you know. Right, and I mean, this also brings me to, a, you know, you raised the question earlier of like how useful is biopolitics as a as a concept or biopolitics or biopower as, as a sort of analytical concept. Um, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what your, you know, different positions were on it. You know, I, I think it's, um, I think it's somewhat useful, but, but also, um, I mean, here, here's one way of thinking about it, which I, I was actually in a conference, uh, an online conference a couple of weeks ago, which was, I think the first kind of, you know, discussion among academics I've had that, you know, broached a lot of these more critical perspectives. Um, and, you know, I'm also going to another such, uh, which um, is, is coming up shortly. So it, it does seem like there's a little bit of a, an opening up about being able to discuss these things. But um, at that conference, you know, one critique of the mode of biopolitics was just that it, it's, it, it, it's not specific enough that, or, I mean, particularly when you want to try to make sense of something like what's been going on in the past two and a half years, you know, it, it, it becomes a kind of easy shorthand for, you know, this particular mode of emergency politics that you have criticisms of. But, you know, in reality, the concept is a lot broader, right? And so, I mean, one way to think about this would be, you know, we had several, um, you know, there was a major uh, pandemic, influenza pandemic in like 1957, 1958. I mean, I think another one in 1969, 1970. So, you know, you can, I mean, I, I read some things about the the sort of um, responses to those and the ways that they were managed, which obviously contrasted immensely with, with what's happened in the past couple of years, not necessarily because the severity was, was any less, um, but, you know, simply because the mode of governance was quite distinct, right? And so, you know, in theory, all of these kind of fall under the heading of, of biopolitics, but that, that doesn't necessarily tell us that much, right? So I think we need to, you know, try to be a bit more fine-grained in terms of, because I think, you know, one, one problem is that, you know, those of us who are, who are critical of, of the pandemic response, um, you know, can fall back on this as a kind of, uh, as a shorthand for the stuff we don't like, or the, the stuff that we think was, was disastrous and harmful, right? But, you know, the, the term is, is a great deal broader than that its implication is what has been distinct about this set of developments. So I think it can be useful, you know, particularly for thinking, and here's my, my main sort of way that I would sell it as a valuable concept is for thinking about the, um, the value of sort of life itself, right? And it's the, the sort of paramount place that it's taken up in, you know, legitimating um, power. And so you know, I think this basic idea that it, it become, you know, that, that it, it, um, 
it's it's a mode of politics where the value of kind of um, caring for and um, you know tending to and managing life you know becomes yeah. a sort of primary mode of legitimation. I think you know there's something quite useful there. You know, in in both in in um, in the Foucault piece, I kind of explore some of the aspects of it that, that reveal, you know, major political ways that's been deployed kind of even pre-COVID. So I think there's something there that's useful, but at the same time that, you know, we have to um, also try to get more specific about the form that that's taken. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, you know, I think that the question of bare life and Agamben, I think is right on this, it has come to the forefront because, you know, it's quite obviously a legacy of, you know, three decades of humanitarian politics, um, certainly on the kind of mainstream center liberal end of the spectrum, uh, which was nakedly and at the end, it's early days self-consciously seen as an alternative to actual politics as to contestation between left and right. And those contest that contestation between left and right involved different visions of what the good life might be. Um, and then in the absence of politics, you have humanitarianism, which flows in initially applied to distant lands and, and uh, vulnerable victims abroad and has now been brought home. And that implies a politics, I mean, in quotation marks, which just seeks to preserve life in various ways. And I think you draw it out quite well in, in the discussion, for example, of like pro-life movements, um, you know, anti-abortion movements, which are pro-life, um, but which that also, you know, entails certain contradictions about, you know, you can murder a, a doctor who carries out abortions, for example. Um, and I guess what ends up being central to this is, or rather the, the kind of the, the obvious opposition to this would be some notion of what human flourishing could be. I mean, to put in kind of maybe two grand terms, but of what the good life might be. Um, and that might also require some form of biopolitics, you know, and this is, was my, my issue, at least, um, with, with the use of the term, that some things that could be described by Foucault, Foucaultians as biopolitics, I think would be the normal course of affairs for any kind of democratic politics, any socialist politics even, um, and that I think a certain element of that would be tolerated. Um, and so to, so to kind of have this hysterical reaction to all state authority. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where that politics leads either to a despair that, oh no, we're constantly dominated everywhere. Um, or maybe even an acceptance as Bratton does and goes, well, actually, no, let's double down on this. Cause it's the only, it's a very radical move that Bratton does. Um, and I think it's to be commended for it because it's explicit about what it's what it's trying to do rather than just going, well, biopolitics is when the state does this thing that I don't like it to do, you know. So what so what's your what's your kind of conclusion there that the the opposite of biopolitics is is also biopolitics? And so therefore it's not such a useful term because it describes the the kind of preconditions for any politics. I'm not, no, sorry, I'm, not, no, I'm not trying to caricature. No, 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 no. I, I'm not saying it's a. I'm not saying it's a precondition for politics. I'm just saying that it, it is one element. I mean, in terms of the state manage management of life, um, obviously, you know, a democratic, uh, truly democratic authority would involve us all in decision-making over both the bases of life, as well as kind of bigger things that we want to achieve in, in life. Um, and, but there will always be some element of, of kind of state response and a need to, to manage conflicts, I think, between people on questions of life. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't see what yeah. the, you know, no. I, I, 
I guess I guess my you know as you were talking it is I don't think it is something we talked about so much and um, when we did this on the reading club like what the opposite of biopolitics is and it's like well I mean the the kind of the more the, the more crankish response that I sort of find myself leaning towards is like freedom but is that a bit too easy I mean because it's a bit like, yeah, okay, so you're talking about the, the necessity of the state to manage populations and to, to deal with all sorts of more or less medicalized and kind of bodily phenomena of various sorts, which which lead, lead to life. So, yeah, I mean, that has to happen to a certain extent. And the alternative is is death. I mean, this maybe is the, the kind of... Um, the 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 implication or the the assumption at the bottom of kind of maybe an approach like Bratton's is like you either get with the biopolitics game or like or everybody dies so it is a but, kind but of alternative let me just, let me, politics of no alternative let me let me just jump in a bit before I ask Jeff to come in to, to kind of because I think the the everybody dies thing is in a way a part of biopolitics as well right I mean it, it is the state deciding over life and death and this might not have happened in Britain, but it happens certainly on like the periphery of, of global capitalism where there is a biopolitics there. And it often involves allowing people to die. Um, and so I deciding life, the conditions. Not <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, you know, so it's not exactly an enviable choice that you want to be making. But the, my point is that they're both, they're both um, you know, aspects of biopolitics. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I suppose, you know, for me, the... The thing that, okay, so, you know, we, we've seen, I mean, we've discussed Bratton's argument, you know, I think, I think the other thing we see, I mean, I just, like, probably pointlessly, but <clears throat> that's what Twitter is, responded, you know, like, replied to some tweet that, you know, by, a, you know, New York leftist journalist that kind of just, you know, reiterated this point we've heard endlessly, right, which is that, you know, these, uh, COVID was this opportunity to, you know, create this new mode of solidarity and bring about this kind of, you know, renovation of the social contract based on care for the other and all of this kind of stuff, right? And so, and, and based on, you know, care, demanding that the state, you know, care for the vulnerable and all that, right? So, I mean, the thing that, you know, my main line of criticism, I mean, I have various lines of criticism at this point, but maybe the one I've repeated most is that what we've seen at every point is that, um, you know, this idea of, you know, this, this proclaimed um, devotion to care for life and care for the vulnerable and so on always has as its flip side this kind of um, <clears throat> scapegoating of, you know, the other who does not care, right? And this other who does not care is usually, um, you know, tr I mean, in a sort of a garment sense becomes, you know, is, is treated as a kind or is... Um, treated as uh, a homo soccer, right, is, is, is basically somebody who, who is pushed outside of the polis, right? This is the anti, I mean, the anti-vaxxer is probably the most obvious instance where you have this kind of immune notion of like an immunological commons or something like that, and they are outside of it, and therefore they are, you know, essentially consigned to oblivion, right? Um, and, and so, you know, this goes along, and, and again, I, you know, just to sort of state my appreciation of certain parts of how, you know, Foucault defines this. Um, you know, I quote him in my, my article saying that, um, you know, within the, the sort of regime of biopolitics, one had the right to kill only those who represented a kind of biological danger to others, right? So this is kind of his, he has an account of how the, the justification for the death penalty essentially shifts, right? That, um, you know, I mean, something he's interested in a lot of his work is, 
how you know um, societies evolve in terms of like under what conditions the state can kill, right? And so you know essentially that un under biopolitics the state kills by defining someone as a danger to life, right? And therefore the killing is itself a kind of um, you know, part of the, the project of biopolitical management, right? And so what we've seen is this happening a lot rhetorically, right? Where, you, you know, basically the people who, um, who are outside of this, who display this, you know, this uh, lack of concern in the form of refusing to, you know, follow the science or whatever are, are treated as, as a kind of expendable life and, and a life that it would be desirable, you know, politically desirable to extinguish basically. And so this, you know, we, we've seen this just in a casual rhetorical way thrown around. And then more broadly, we've seen this idea that, and that this kind of goes back to the state capacity point, right? That, um, you know, th those who are to blame for whatever the, the consequences of this virus are, are always, you know, the other people who have failed to um, be obedient enough to the, the latest, you know, CDC guidelines yeah. or mandates or whatever. So in other words, um, and, and this is also related to why I think there's a, a, a sort of deep connection with the broader trajectory of neoliberalism, right? Where there's basically um, treated as primarily responsible. Um, instead, you know, blame is assigned horizontally, horizontally to the scapegoats who are seen as the, the cause of the um, of the, the failed, you know, management of the virus, right? And so, you know, part of what this means is, of course, that the whole thing can, you know, th that there's no expectation, I mean, that, that in fact, no demands are being placed on state capacity because anytime anything bad happens, a new whatever, a new surge of cases, you know, it, it can always be blamed on these sort of, you know, homo soccer figures who are seen as the, the actual you know, vectors of contagion, right? And, and also source of sort of danger to the body politic. So, you know, that, that I think is, again, you know, is, is specific to, I mean, we've seen other examples of this kind of politics in, in the years leading up to this, um, but I think it's, you know, maybe the most kind of disastrous aspect of this whole response. And it, it does involve a kind of you know, in a way, sort of radicalization of, of certain, you know, premises of biopolitics that, that Foucault identifies. Yeah, no, I mean, I, j just to kind of go back to um, this point you made earlier about emergency politics as a mode of legitimation for institutions. I mean, I think this is, it, it just, it just got me thinking about the the, I guess, you know, to, to bring in the kind of British case, there's, um, an argument that we've, you know, or point that we've discussed on this podcast quite a lot before that if you move from a nation state, which is legitimated by some kind of representative mechanism that the, you know, political elites or political representatives um, have some kind of vertical relationship with the citizenry, um, and then you move to a member state of the, of the European Union, which where that mode of legitimation or that kind of relationship becomes horizontal i.e political elites get their policy direction get their kind of legitimacy of, of of what they're doing from other european elites then it seems like you know in in this to take the case of britain not no longer a member state but not able to go back to that nation state so this in this weird kind of limbo 
like yeah it, it completely makes sense or it completely i think re- resonates with my experience of of being uh, british um that the is emergency politics so covid ukraine that there's there is a there is a kind of a flailing around for search for sources of legitimacy given that a previous vertical relationship of the nation state that's been eroded away that previous horizontal relationship of the the member state that doesn't pertain anymore so it just seems like you know not to put it too grandiosely but you know we're kind of at the forefront of world history again um for the first time since 1640 in this in <clears throat> where where i am that it's like this this uh state that's looking for legitimation um is is kind of emergency politics makes a great deal of sense to, to fill this this gap and you know we're the first post member state that's that's i guess my my conclusion anyway i just wanted to that was a rather long uh digression but i just yeah i mean is is this going to become the what we see in the next sort of 20 years that you know because it does seem like we've had two once in a lifetime of things happening covid and then the restarting of history in ukraine i mean is are we just going to have these sorts of continual emergencies for the for the foreseeable future as the way that states try to legitimize themselves do you think yeah, that is sort of my sense. I mean, I, I'll come back here in terms of this competing emergency politics. You know, it's interesting to me that this whole state, of, you know, state of exception concept, um, as I argued in the second piece that Alex mentioned um, in the New Atlantis, you know, it's, it, it originates in this kind of Weimar era debate between a figure of the left, Walter Benjamin, and a figure of the right, Carl Schmidt, right, who are, you know, in a way sort of, um, you know, each other's uh, you know, thoughtful interlocutors, right, and kind of actually appreciate each other's work. But, you know, it, it, what's curious is that actually both of them are, in a sense, kind of advocates of emergency politics. I mean, Schmidt, most obviously, right, because he really sees, you know, he's an anti-liberal theorist, right, and he he wants to push, um, you know, he, he sees interwar liberalism as just, uh, I mean, of, of the Weimar Republic as, you know, in this kind of inexorable trajectory towards collapse. And so he sees the state of exception as a means by which a kind of new order can be installed. And that's effectively what happens in 1933. And, and he's essentially supportive and, and kind of useful of the Nazis. Meanwhile, Benjamin, himself later a victim of the Nazis, really, you know, is using this to think in terms in his very kind of, you know, apocalyptic and sort of messianic mode of Marxism about, I mean, on one hand, he's thinking about I mean, in a sense, he thinks of the sort of reign of capital as itself, this kind of prolonged state of exception, which can only be suspended by a kind of exception within the exception, um, in a sense. So what's interesting is both of them are kind of using this concept to think positively, right? They're, they're sort of positive theorists of the state of exception about how to transcend this kind of moribund liberal order that they were living in in the interwar period. So... It's interesting that when it when it kind of comes back to currency, basically through a Gombin, it's it's deployed as a critical concept. You know, it's it's heavily embraced by the left as a way of critiquing the war on terror um, in the Bush administration, and then it kind of goes away. You know, just as we forgot Foucault during the pandemic, we kind of forgot Agamben's um, critiques of the security state after Obama was elected and everybody decided, you know, him continuing all the stuff Bush was doing was fine. So, so basically, um, you know, 
on one hand you, but on, my point is on one hand, you have this positive emergency politics of the left and of the right already kind of at the origin of the concept as it's deployed in modern times. And, you know, the left version of that is again, I think this, you know, one or the other version of this positive biopolitics or perhaps a kind of, you know, climate emergency, um, yeah. you know, way of transcending capitalism, um, you know, this, this kind of war communism concepts that you get from um, Malm or, you know, Zizek's various kind of deployments of similar ideas. And then on the right, you do have a real, and this is, you know, again, where the kind of Trumpian intellectuals fit into this, right, where in a sense they are really resurrecting this kind of Schmidtian project because what they're, you know, what the reason they're trying to overturn the election is not simply because they thought it was unfair or they thought Biden cheated. It's because they see it as a way of kind of overturning the sort of normal functioning of the system that will enable a kind of, you know, again, an installation of a new regime, right? As they, as they like to talk about it, like a, a sort of, you know, the only way you can actually have a revolution in the regime is by, you know, essentially, um, deconstructing it administratively through some kind of radical action, right? And so they see um, that that essentially breaks the rules as, you know, that, that are accepted at a given moment, right? So, so in other words, they see the, the, the abnormality of, of something like, you know, overturning this election as part of the point, right? Because, because the point is in fact to, um, you know, weaponize a kind of state of emergency and a kind of exception, you know, a kind of exceptional politics in order to overturn the regime. Yeah. So that's, I think, you know, in terms of like this guy, John Eastman, I mean, Ross Douthat had a column about him recently that kind of tried to make sense of this, but, you know, it is also, again, to the extent that the kind of Trumpian right that actually like is still trying to overturn election results in states you know, has a, has a kind of ethos behind it. I mean, I don't think this is the way that the majority of like just average sort of MAGA people are thinking about it. It, it actually really is this explicit notion that you have to do something that, you know, subverts the accepted norms of the time and thereby kind of creates this new state of exception by which a new regime mm. can sort of be established. So uh, that in that piece in the New Atlantis, I mean, you make the point that opposing the state of, exception recent history suggests can perpetuate it rather than helping us move beyond it so you know the emergence raising the alarm bell of the emergency of covidian biopolitics for example um itself is a participation in some way in in emergency politics um which i i find convincing but i also kind of wondering what the alternative to that is um and it it strikes me that what you've got now is a neoliberalism which is crumbling it's almost unrecognizable probably uh, if one were to compare it to its 1980s variant um and what you have instead of either you know kind of force from any part of society overthrowing neoliberalism um and you know overthrowing neoliberalism doesn't need to be, mean social revolution in the way that you know a, a, a socialist would want i just mean some section even a faction of the elite or from the middle class or whoever it might be just kind of um moving us on to a new sort of order um, instead of that, what you have is this competing emergency politics, which I think probably serves to freeze neoliberalism in place, while at the same time serving to kind of shift it onto into new ways. I mean, becoming, I don't know, um, 
increasing its control mechanisms, perhaps increasing the role of the state in um, not just in perhaps in taking more direct responsibility for outcomes, right? In, in the sense of like, um, you know, we're not just going to do it, for example, to take the example of the preferred left-wing emergency politics around the climate, we're not just going to do carbon trading, i.e. the classic neoliberal response of creating a, a market where one didn't exist, but we're going to, you know, take more direct action to ban people from driving cars or whatever it might be. Um, and so that might shift us past neoliberalism, but without really of any serious challenge of its fundamentals, I think. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, going back to your earlier point, right, so the, <clears throat> the argument I make there, I mean, in, in a way it was partly a, a <laughs> conceived in part as a kind of self-critique, because I think my own, you know, particularly like living in New York, which, you know, I mean, at this point has relaxed a lot of the COVID policies, but still has a couple of particularly insane and sort of sadistic ones in place, Um you know, so I, I was finding my my own outrage against uh, what I saw as the the you know disastrous sort of governance during this period. What, you know, made me just first of all forget about any other issues. <laughs> just as the, the people I was arguing <laughs> with, just as the people I was arguing with were, had forgotten about everything other than COVID. You know, I did as well, but I, I mostly forgot about everything other than you know being angry about stupid COVID policies. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, I, again, it, it does kind of create this, um, you know, mimetic effect where, you know, when you're, when you're sort of, I mean, you know, and I think this goes back to like a, a simple point you brought up about, you know, state capacity, right? That like, I mean, part of what we're, you know, and this is a very kind of American affairs point, I suppose, but like, you know, part of what we're lacking is like a, a sort of, you know, various kinds of project, you know, sort of positive kind of developmentalist projects in a sense, right? That will, you know, rebuild various kinds of state capacity, yeah. um, rebuild, you know, various kinds of, you know, production that, you know, were, I mean, the, the absence of which was very evident early on in the pandemic and, you know, kind of still is with the supply chain snags and, you know, results and the impact on inflation. So, you know, I, I do think there is a kind of, um, a way that this kind of these kind of competing states of emer state of emergency politics are necessarily going to be inimical to those kinds of projects, right? Which are, um, I mean, it's which it's not to say that those kind of I mean, I think those kind of projects historically actually have um, often come about in response to various kinds of emergencies. Um, interestingly, but you know, at the moment, that doesn't seem to be the the the, the type of demand that you know, these types of emergencies are, are um, occasioning or the kind of politics that's, that's developing out of a kind of, you know, um, exceptionality type of thinking. So, you know, and th this could relate also to the, you know, episode I did on my podcast recently about um, the sort of theorizing the culture war with Michael Cuenca, where I think, yeah, the things, the things he's thinking about as this, um, the, the sources of a kind of debilitating culture war, you know, are, are at odds with um, any of these kind of more ambitious projects that are really taking root. So, you know, I, I think um, there is a kind of, I mean, and, and the argument I also made in the, I mean, an example I gave of how we saw this happen is that like, 
you know, this whole kind of state of exception thinking was really a critique of the American security state and the, the original form it took in, in, mm-hmm. in Agamben's kind of reception in, in American academia, like 15, 20 years ago. And then, you know, again, what we saw basically was the left, um, first of all, embrace this, the agencies of the security state as its allies. And also, I mean, and this is kind of interesting in relation to like where sovereignty lies, um, you know, who can declare the state of exception? Well, it seems clear to me that, you know, it was the left that declared the state of exception during the Trump presidency, right? And it was able to do that in a way that was um, efficacious uh, because it, you know, because of its alliances and positioning within various of these institutions, right? Which I think, you know, supports some sort of notion of, of sovereignty being located in this kind of managerial system. Um, and the, you know, the relative fecklessness, I mean, and this kind of relates back to like the point about, you know, Trump in Bratton's argument, like being a, a representing a kind of reassertion of the kind of older politics of, of sovereignty, you know, his, his relative kind of fecklessness and even helplessness against these kind of onslaughts again is mm. a, a good um, illustration of that so I, I don't know how well that answered your question I mean I think no I think that's know, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that's I think that's right but I think um, you know I, I, I wanted to carry on and go into the question of culture wars because I think that it, it intersects in an interesting way potentially with the kind of competing emergency politics. Um, but we've been going for uh, over an hour and unfortunately we're going to have to end here. But if you're ever coming on the podcast again um, in the near future to do a uh, discussion on culture wars, we should do that. Um, sure. And in any case, I think the, the kind of, you know, thing that strikes us about the competing emergency politics, which I think we agree on that it's, a, it's something that characterizes contemporary politics, isn't going away anytime soon. So um, there's plenty of times to explore its contours more. Um, there's to no, try to actually get a there's no emergency it. to have no, to. No, right. Exactly. Now. Exactly. There's no emergency. Why don't you just stop and think, you know, don't just, don't just do something, stand there. Um, I think that's, that's a good takeaway. <laughs> All right, Jeff, thanks very much for, for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on again soon. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Excellent.